Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello! Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure with me, Thomas Dinas. This is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. And this time, we're not going to travel too far into the past, nearly 300 or so years ago, with my guest, Dr. Neil Battery, who has been the guest into, podcast, um, into our podcast before, when he talked about his uh, book, The Dark History of Sugar. Incidentally, Neil has his own podcast called the British Food History Podcast. And of course, uh, he is he's now an award-winning author. So his first book, A Dark History of Sugar, won the best first book by the Guild of Food Writers Awards in 2023. He also released another one recently about Elizabeth Raffald, which is called Before Miss Beaton, Elizabeth Raffald, England's most influential housekeeper. Our conversation today will concentrate on um, four amazing cooks from that era. Elizabeth Raffald herself and three others, Eliza Smith, Hannah Glass and Anne Cook. Some of you might have heard these names before, especially if you are interested in uh, food history and uh, historical recipes and what um, has survived from the past, especially given that the proliferation of books from the 1600s and so on, and um, the changes, the profound changes in the society with um, new discoveries and technology and the emergence of um, the middle classes. And therefore, with um, we arrive on the 18th century and we arrive in a critical point of the relationship of, um, of people and the food, the conception of um, what is um, aristocratic food and what is good food, and of course, how that can be transmitted to everyone or to the ones that they have the means. And it's very interesting to see that uh, uh, these four women, especially, obviously there were men that were important in the era, but also, but importantly, these four women, they provided, they were provided with a platform so we can hear their voices. And um, they, in a sense, gave us a first step on how modern cookbooks should be. And they influenced, obviously, um, cookbooks on the 19th century and the 20th century, and subsequently we arrive in the modern cookbook. But um, the way that this is structured uh, has to do with uh, these um, four women. It was a very interesting conversation, very informative and enjoyable and fun. So I hope uh, you enjoy uh, me and um, Dr. Neil Battery talking about the subject. 
And we concentrated on these four women because uh, <laughs> back then, especially back then, it was all about the men and about uh, aristocratic and grand cooking and um, um, cooking for kings and um, emperors, and that was mainly men. But these women profoundly changed and influenced modern cooking. So without further ado, let's uh, get on to our conversation. Hello, Neil. Welcome to the Delicious Legacy podcast. Thank you very much for having me again. It's nice to be back. Indeed. And uh, since uh, the last time we've been on this uh, podcast together, mm. you wrote another book. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so <laughs> for the listeners that they don't know about um, you or your previous book or your new book, why don't mm. you introduce uh, yourself a little bit? Right. Well, uh well, my name is Neil Buttery. I'm a chef, although I don't do too much chefing these days. And I'm a food historian and an author. I do lots of bits and bobs. I've got my... It all began writing blogs, and then it snowballed uh, into various other things, like a restaurant and into doing various writings and various books now. The first one came out last year, and that's The Dark History of Sugar, which yes. I've spoken to you about. And um, that won an award, I believe. It did win. I've got, this wasn't um, planned. I'm using it. I'm using it as a paperweight. <laughs> Here it is. Yay! Yeah. Since we talked Very about nice. the, that book, won uh, won an award uh, from the Guild of uh, Food Writers, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. For best first book. Yeah. Uh, but that was after I interviewed you because I knew before them that you're amazing. Oh, shucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was the first book, but the second book, which second came out book, this year. Yeah, yeah, Before Mrs. Beaton, which is about, well, if you're not into your British food history, in fact, even people who are into their British food history, she's a fairly obscure person, Elizabeth Raffold of Manchester. She was knocking around a good 100 years before Mrs. Beaton, and... Very important from the point of view of food history in, in in England, in the UK. We're heavily influenced by even now, and most of us haven't heard her name. So I felt like she really had to have her story told because it's an amazing story. Mm. You would almost say it's far-fetched. If it was in a TV drama, you'd be like, oh, this is nonsense. This doesn't happen in real life. <laughs> and um, no, one's, no one's heard of her, which is a shame. This is incredible, isn't it? I mean, I've heard of her, but only passingly. You know, I didn't know anything about her before. Obviously, you started mentioning it and reading about her uh, mm. on your, not even before the book, actually. Yeah, your your blog and uh, your notes and the recipes that you post. So, yeah, uh, thanks <laughs> for uh, for introducing her to us, basically. Yeah, I mean, I found out about it very early on in my career. I'm doing some big air quotes there. <laughs> I say career. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really got into sort of traditional cooking rather than history at first. Um, but the first historical recipe was an Elizabeth Raffold bit one. It appeared in Jane Grigson's book called English Food. And that's how I was introduced to her. So I made the recipe and it was really nice. It was orange flavoured custards that you bake in the oven. They were very nice, and there was a brief biography in that book, which I just couldn't believe. So I, I went off and found out more about her. I got a copy of her book, a facsimile of her book. So it's the first historical cookbook I owned, and the mm. first one that I cooked from. So, you know, she's been with me from all, almost the beginning, anyway. 
So mm. she's very important to me on a, on a personal level. Yeah, that's that's great. And this is great, of course. That's good for us as well, for our uh, episode today and our discussion, mm. because we are kind of talking about 18th century cooks and especially female cooks and uh, their importance, I suppose, and their role in uh, the cookery, in the history of British cooking and British food and generally, basically, in, in, in that, on that respect. And she's of that era, really. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're the root of what we think of today as traditional British English food. You'll flick through them. I mean, there's going to be there's some oddities, and we might talk about those at some point. Mm. But in the main, it's things that you've heard of, even if you've not eaten, or you're not even quite sure what they are. It's mm. things like, you know, puddings and pies and, and roast beef and jugged hair and things that are maybe more more modern than you might think. You know, there's the spun sugar webs, there's mm. macaroni cheese and omelettes and things that are sort of sort of modern, which we're knocking around then, sometimes in, in, invented by by these women. So without these women, um, we wouldn't have the cuisine that we have today. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, <laughs> that's up to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. we'll, let the, we'll let the listeners decide. <laughs> I think we could um, start by setting the scene, I suppose, a little bit. So we're talking okay. about the 18th century and um, the world then... It's mm-hmm. kind of changing very fast, right? Yeah, it's really changing quickly. It's before we've got to the Industrial Revolution, but there's other revolutions that are going on, like the Agricultural Revolution, where animals are being bred more quickly and they're much bigger, so there's more to go around. We're able to plant things, harvest things much more quickly. There's a lot of work done in growing a bigger variety of food. So really, never before has there been such a variety and such an amount of food Mm. to work with and it's things like you know it might sound a bit boring but things like the canal network is put in there which we we kind of think of oh it's nice barges (laughs) it might go on holiday on but then it was really important bit of infrastructure things that were having to be carried about by horse and cart suddenly could be traveling albeit slowly but 24 hours a day and things like coal hard more than halved in price Mm. so people could spend more money uh, in the kitchen, cooking things for longer and developing more techniques. And and then things like candle wax became cheaper, which meant people could afford to light their dining rooms and invite people around. They used to have dinner about one in the afternoon before. Yeah. Really annoying in the middle of the day. You've got to go stop doing everything for two hours to go have dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's very... Yeah. <laughs> so they shifted it shifted it later, but it meant you could invite people around more. So mm. it became much more social and there was a sort of pressure to impress people, a pressure to do good food. But actually, there was never a more economical time before mm. to kind of do, do big food. I mean, not everyone could afford this big food. I mean, there's a huge variety. The larder is always bulging full if, if you're in the Georgian era. If you can afford it, if you can't afford it, you're on gruel, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gru- gru- yeah. <laughs> great. Uh, but yeah, uh, I suppose then we also have the mercantile classes and we have a lot of trade with the New World and with the other colonies. And there's colonies from, you know, French and Spanish and Dutch all over the globe now. Yeah. From that era. Lots and of spats, lots of wars, lots of disagreements. 
But the first era of globalization, true globalization, the new world's discovered, there's trade routes, you know, there's well-established ones uh, mm. in Asia, Africa, China. Well, they're still quite secretive. We haven't quite necessarily um, traded with them officially. It was very much in favor of the Chinese, which is fair enough. Mm. <laughs> but then, of course, you get the East India Company when uh, the... Uh, British colonists in, in, in India realised that the Indians had been drinking tea all this time and they didn't even notice. <laughs> so, <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> so they went, oh, brilliant, we can get tea here now. So tea yeah. became cheaper and you got coffee and you got sugar. And chocolate. So, so chocolate. So going into the 18th century, everything like that's been made by slave labour which is important to, to remember. But by the end, because you've got to get into the 19th century before there's abolition. Mm. What's that, 1807? Oh, I'm really bad at remembering years. Yeah. It's about 1807, Let's something see. like that. Mm. There was free trade with India, so sugar dropped in price. We were very much a, we were removing, thinking about removing those shackles of, of slavery, even though we didn't quite do it. But yes, huge amount of food, not necessarily made ethically, produced ethically, and certainly not shared evenly either. So it's a complex place and a huge amount of flux and changes going on. Yeah, definitely. And on that um, environment, on that uh, bubbling cauldron, mm -hmm. we have um, a bunch of women that kind of uh, come into the surface and um, they create these books and these recipes. Yeah. Should we talk perhaps... Um, for the first one that we're going to mention today, like Eliza Smith, for example? Mm, Eliza Smith, uh, it's probably a name that people have heard. They might not have looked through her book. People don't really know that much about it, to be honest, so I can't really mm. say very much. Um, yeah. She died when her a couple of years after the book came out, 1727, I think, and she'd been a domestic servant, a housekeeper, and she was very um, experienced. So she wrote this book. It's one of the first women to, to write a, a cookery book. Certainly uh, when it comes to somebody who wasn't noble, you know, or, or high up in, in, in some way. Mm. And some great, there's some great recipes in there. The book's called The Complete Housewife. And it's great. I would recommend people having a look. You can, you can use it. I mean, the recipes then were, did not have a huge amount of detail. They kind of assume mm. you kind of know what you're doing. It's more of a mm. reminder. Or if they've got a, um, a variation, they'll, they'll really go into detail about the variation, but assume you know how to do the rest, the bulk yeah. of it, you know. Yeah. Where she perhaps didn't succeed, and we'll probably talk about this later when we look at the other women who, who wrote books in the 18th century, but she was very much writing from the point of view of a subordinate to a superior. So the recipes were good, but it wasn't quite put, I suppose, in the right way. It was a bit sort of pandering to the to the sort of the, the, the bosses, the employers, the right. gentlewomen and the yeah. gentlemen employing them. But really good and absolutely changed things. Her her book was the first cookery book to be printed in North America. So you know it's successful really successful so I, I don't want to um put her down she was definitely ahead of everyone else but because she was the first pretty much people very quickly were able to improve on that <laughs> so she's a pioneer but quite often the pioneer gets left behind quite quickly because other people jump on you know stand on the shoulders of giants as they say yeah. and 
you know, are, are even more successful. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that and that's the surprising thing that it's the first cookie book to be printed in North America, and that says something basically. Yeah, I mean, early 18th century, you know, it's still a still an English colony. Mm, yeah, yeah, before yeah, before it was uh, United <laughs> States of America. Yeah, it's crazy if you <laughs> if you just think about it. It's, it's crazy. Mm. And yeah, that's the thing. We don't know much about her. We have very scant information, so we all not know about her book and no, the recipes. She's not a, yeah, she's not a noble woman, so yeah. there's we we just don't know anything mm. at all. If she survived, who knows? She might have done loads of editions and become as popular as some of the other women. Yeah, that came a little bit after her. Yeah, and then there is a, a certain one that a lot of us we've heard of, especially ones yeah. we 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 talk about food and history, like Hannah Glass. Yes. So she was kind of the next one in our list. Yeah, so 1747, so only 20 years ahead, mm. the next generation, I suppose you could say. Yeah. And she was, yeah, she definitely took things further. She's a mixed bag, though. For example, so the book, we all know now that it was written by Hannah Glass, but the book is it's called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. Yeah. Is it plain and easy? <laughs> Mm. Well, we'll get onto that maybe. <laughs> we should. Mm. I'd say it was neither plain nor easy. <laughs> <sighs> But anyway, yeah. bless her. The book was actually anonymously published. It was published by a lady. And it took a while before it became really popular. I've heard different accounts of this, and I must admit, I must. It's, it should be easy to find out, but I keep forgetting to do it. I'm quite forgetful. Some people say that she started putting her name on a few editions in because there'd been all sorts of thieves which were really bad, especially Samuel Johnson, you know, wrote the first person to write the full dictionary. Dictionary, um, yeah, yeah. He said that The Art of Cookery could not have been written by a woman because it's too good. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. How nice. What, what's, what's the phrase? W women, women can spin very well, but they cannot uh, write a good book of cookery. <laughs> Oh, oh my God! So, I, so, <laughs> so, um, some people said, "Oh, hang on." You, she said, "Right, well, I'm not having that. <laughs> All the future editions are going to have my name on it." Thank you. Yeah, yeah. However, I think the other is true that actually her name was a, appeared on there when the publisher, her publisher, decided, "Oh well, she's dead now. I'll put the name on." Uh -huh, I've okay. got a feel. I've got a feeling that's what happened. Only because, like I say, I really should go back and check. <laughs> I might make a note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, can't do everything. Research no. is never finished, folks. <laughs> you, don't, good, you never good, know yeah. everything. Yeah, um, but <laughs> publishers did have a bit of a, a behavior, a pattern. You know, when their writers died, they suddenly made all the changes that they wanted to make. You know, usually yeah. against the, the author's wishes. So I'm assuming it's that one, but I could be wrong. I could yeah. be wrong. And she wasn't born glass. She was born all good or something like that. She had an aristocratic family, right? Yeah, that's right. So this is why she, she puts a lady on the front. I suppose it's to give it a little bit of gravitas. It's to point out, you know, that she's not a member of the domestic class. Rather than Eliza Smith very much was, she's mm. saying, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm one of you. Because the people who are buying these books are going to be people who are upper middle class or upper class. So yeah. she's like, oh, I'm one of you. So she very much changed the perspective so th there wasn't that kind of um subordinate way of talking like mm. eliza smith had it's a bit more assertive and, and understanding yeah yeah so this book um the recipes in her book they are kind of uh, 
borrowed liberally from others, right? Yeah, really <laughs> borrowed. <laughs> there's, there's an anonymously published book called um, The Whole Duty of a Woman from, well, around the time of, of Eliza Smith. We don't know who wrote it. I mean, a, a woman, probably, but I'm not even sure. Probably, yeah. I don't think yeah. we even know that. So, yes, uh, you know, it wasn't a thing for a, a, a woman to publish her name, Yeah, really. Um, I mean, it wasn't a thing to have your book published at all if you're a woman. Men, their fragile feelings of masculinity, <laughs> uh, didn't really, really want any women publishing. But if they were going to, then it's fine for them to write about cooking and cleaning and poetry and things. That's, that's all right. Yeah. But even feelings. then, there's obviously a pressure because there's so many books written by women that are anonymous. Mm. It was the thing. So by putting a lady in there, it did put you a little bit ahead of the other anonymous women. <laughs> so at least you know, oh, okay, this is a member of the gentry. But it's more complicated than that. She was born out of wedlock. Isaac Allgood was her father living up in Northumbria in a place called Hexham. Because she was, well, a bastard, essentially. She wasn't brought up in the home, brought up with her uncle. And she ran off with a guy, John Glass, and married him in secret. And he was a bit of a weak guy. I mean, I don't know why she fell for him in the first place. It's a shame these things aren't captured. But he'd been an ex-soldier. I think there might have been a bit of PTSD. There was certainly uh, some alcoholism in there. Right, right. And they tried various different jobs and it didn't really go very well for them she was prompted then to write the book and it sold very well but she tried doing loads of other things she had she tried to be a haberdasher at one point mm-hmm. <laughs> um all these different things she was a bit of a, a bit of a player i suppose you'd say now you know trying to uh, look at various different things maybe she was getting a bit of a cash injection from her her family from her father's side of the family yeah um, the all goods but yes, but then she hit gold with with the book and, and, and off it went. And I think it's the one that most people know of today. It's the one Absolutely. that people, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you know two historical cookery writers at all, I would say, you know, even if you just dabbled in these things, the two names that are going to crop up, both women, it's going to be Mrs. Beaton and Hannah Glass, I would say. Mm, yeah, that was my first ones. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, indeed. And it's a good, it's a good book. It's a good book. But some and recipes a, don't work. <laughs> the, reci- the recipes don't necessarily work. A lot of these, I'm, going to, I'm trying to be kind here, a lot of, with a lot of these books, mm. it's great for us now because it's to see that the general processes that were going on, the sorts of ingredients that were going in things, and it's the things that people like to eat. We assume people were eating these things. Yeah. Although you, we've all, we all buy cookery books and don't necessarily cook the recipes in them. So, you know, you're never 100% sure. I'm sure the same was going on then as it is now. Mm. So it's, they're, they're, they're amazing snapshots, and she's got loads of recipes. So yeah. it's, it's really good. And she's got some firsts in there. You know, there's a first recipe for Yorkshire pudding in there, for example. Mm. Um, so, it's yeah, it's really important. People say that... Um, there's a misquotation about Hannah Glass that she starts her roasted hair recipe or, or, or her jugged hair recipe with first catch your hair. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not true, unfortunately. <laughs> I've heard about the, the phrase and the yeah. Okay. <laughs> so but the thing is, I suppose, she was so yes, she was a relative of the gentry, fairly minor gentry, but still gentry. But at the same time, she'd done all this work in a bit doing a bit of domestic service 
starting up a shop, all this stuff, you know, basically stuff that a commoner, again, inverted commas, would, would be doing because she, that's basically the, the life that she'd signed up to by marrying John Glass. Yeah, yeah. You know, for good or ill, you know, they were obviously wrapped, wrapped up in each other at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't turn out too well. He, um, he, he, he unfortunately died with leaving her with a huge amount of debt so she, right. she really had to work hard she, she, she published a couple more books they weren't anywhere near as successful as as uh, the art of cookery mm. so the other really important thing that i forgot to mention at the beginning was the type of food that people were eating there's a bigger war going on around people's right. dining rooms dining tables rather because you've got all the people like good old-fashioned simple plain english cooking which doesn't mean boring it's just a few ingredients cooked very well, you know, like the roast meat, you know, things that we were, we were famous for. Yeah. But then there was all this sort of French cookery. Mm. You know, it goes in and out of fashion French cookery through English um, history. And, and there's a lot of people going, no, we, we need to be doing this French food, but it was it cost an absolute fortune. You had to get French chefs in, or at least people who are trained in the arts of cooking French food. Yeah, it's just so expensive and over the top and... Ugh. Yeah. Not very good yeah. from the point of view of um, of home economics, and it was seen yeah, by a few to be a bit naff. Yeah. So you had this war, like people wanted the old-fashioned good stuff and people who wanted this new fancy French stuff. And Hannah Glass was very much on the English side of it. And she's like, I can show you how to cook more economically, and I'm going to do it in a plain and easy style because I'm not going to be writing to... You, for you, I'm writing for your domestic servants. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, where she gets it wrong. Because right. she's very much, she's like, oh, I'm not going to use fancy words because your staff aren't <laughs> going to understand those because they're idiots. <laughs> and paraphrasing, <laughs> this is what she's saying. Um, so although she tries to sing, you know, for in- English food and English cooking, she doesn't quite get her voice right i suppose mm. but again it's it's a bit ahead of of eliza smith because she's very much aware of the of this kind of war going on in people's dining rooms yeah and i guess you could say it's maybe political i mean england and france are never getting on at this point so it is kind of a political thing too i suppose but that yeah, yeah. That's, that's hannah glass a, a mixed bag a mixed bag <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean her, you know she demystified a lot of um French recipes, modernize a few of them, the translated terms, old-fashioned terms, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she, again, this is something that goes in and out of fashion, making demi-glasses. They called mm. it cullis back then. All right. Anyway, you, you, you're boiling down huge joints of meat to get a really rich stock, and then you're boiling that yeah. down to get um, like a syrup. You can almost paint yeah. on and use it to yeah. pick on sauces. She's like, no, nah, that's... Not very economical, yeah. No, this is nonsense, she says, really. You know, I'm going to show you some other ways of doing it. So we're getting there, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things, things are incredible mentally improving from the point of view of cookery books and, yeah. and home economics you yeah because you, you try to do a recipe f- for the christmas pie isn't it mm. Mm. christmas mm. pie oh my god the yorkshire, yorkshire christmas pie the yorkshire christmas pie they were quite famous at the time people wealthy landowners that therefore had lots of game could sort of collect them all put them in a pie a huge pie with loads of melted butter on it take absolutely ages to to boil. And we're talking like it would take like two or three people to carry these pies. They were huge, absolutely nuts. <laughs> and you can stick it on a horse and carriage, <laughs> send it down to London to your friends for Christmas, and they can have right. it, you know, because they, they're in the city. They can't really get any game very easily. 
So they were very popular, they were very expensive. And I was asked to make one for a TV program a few years ago. I'd always wanted to make one and I knew I would never do it because it's so crazy. Yeah. So I was given a chance. So I said, yes. But I said, it requires a lot of skill to make one of these. And they're like, oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> TV producers. <laughs> yeah. So they said, we want you to do Hannah Glass's recipe because it's the first recipe, I think, for Yorkshire Christmas pie in there. Yeah. Um, I've got the recipe here, actually. Let me, let me just find it. Do, do, do. Where is it? A Yorkshire Christmas pie. So they got to do a lot of boning out of birds. Uh, it's like when there's... Um, it's a bird within a bird within a bird within a bird sort of thing. Okay. So what you got to do, you've got to do, you got to bone a turkey, a goose, a fowl, in other words, a chicken, a partridge and a pigeon, and you season them all with lots of spices, which were expensive themselves. Yeah. You put them all inside each other in this great big pie, which requires half a bushel of flour, um, which <laughs> is something like 15 kilos of flour. Oh, my God. That's, That's how much flour you've got to use. It's nuts. It took me a week to make it. You put them all in there with about five pounds of <laughs> five pounds of butter on it, and then any gaps you fill with grouse and hair. The hair that jumps about like a rabbit, not hair on your head. And then you st stick a lid on it, shove it in the oven, and what should have come out a few hours later was a delicious pie. Yeah. That, but that is not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it just went in the oven, and slowly, very slowly, you could see it bulging out at the top, and then eventually... As he was just there looking through the glass. Now, it was being filmed whilst all of this was going on as well. Oh, no. <laughs> it just flumped on the front door. Oh. <laughs> and then all this butter started gushing out of the sides. We did manage to cook it eventually. It took 12 hours to cook it. And it was completely black on the outside because it'd been in the ovens for 12 hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a complete disaster. So thanks, Hannah, for that one. That wasn't part of the recipe, was it? It, it, it didn't say it's going to go completely black on the outside and inedible. Well, no, indeed. <laughs> yeah, so that pie wasn't supposed to be black outside. It's supposed to be edible, but um, it yeah. didn't happen. No, it was a bit like, it's one of those things, the pastry wasn't meant to be eaten, but it wasn't meant to be black either. But really, it's it's like, you know, when you buy um, uh, duck legs in, in confit or something, you know, in France, it was the same principle as that. You put all this meat in, cover it in butter, and it sterilizes it, you know, the heat of the oven, and then you get this layer of butter on the top, which seals the air. Yeah. You send it open, and then on Boxing Day, day after Christmas Day, St. Stephen's mm -hmm. Day, you crack open the top of yeah. your pie, and then you dig it in, and you, you know, slice up the meat and have it, you know, as, as cold cuts, which people really liked back then mm. so it made sense really but the, it just it just became a competitive thing like who can make the bigger pie with the biggest death count <laughs> <laughs> christ how big was your pie by the way you said about 12 kilos of flour did you use actually 12 kilos of flour yeah yeah it took me about five days to make all the pastry it took ages well it took two two of us to carry it into the oven and we could only just do it and my what I thought was a fairly sturdy tray that it was on, you know, was flexing. There's a famous drawing of Queen Victoria's Yorkshire Christmas pie. It's been brought into the main dining hall and it's carried on the shoulders of four footmen. You know, Jesus. they absolutely weighed a ton. <laughs> it's like the pallbearers with a coffin. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's the coffin. It's the coffin of all the animals we killed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah. We depopulated the whole of uh, the moors for, That's it, yeah. for your dinner, Queen. Uh, yeah, great. Good times. And then we have, at the same era, we have another female 
cook mm. and writer. Anne Cook. Yes. <laughs> Aptly named Anne cook. cook. Yeah, no, it's a good name, isn't it? Yeah, she's, she's a contemporary of, of Hannah Glass. And I must admit, I have known about her for a while, and she crops up in the Elizabeth Raffle book, but only more recently have I discovered more about her. And I didn't know that she was not, not only a contemporary of Hannah Glass, but they were kind of warring people. Mm. I think it was quite one-sided, actually. I don't think Hannah Glass really knew or cared <laughs> what was going on. It was all under the nun But she, she writes a rather obscure book called Professed Cookery. And it's a hard book to get hold of. And somebody, or two people actually, have just sort of published a transcript of a... Let me tell you their names. It's um, Clarissa Dillon and Deborah Peterson. Mm, who are okay. um, historical cooks, uh, they're American, uh, USA, and they're very well experienced. And what they've done essentially is they've gone through the book, cooked the recipes and said whether they worked or not, essentially. And if, you know, where there's a vague instruction, they've given a bit more detail. But what they've also done is annotated Anne Cook's vitriolic comments against, <laughs> against <laughs> Hannah Glass. She absolutely hated her. <laughs> and well to, yeah. to illustrate how much she hated her the first 10 pages of the book or something is a long form poem written in rhyming couplets oh yeah about, i read it about... <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. i mean oh my gosh scathing <laughs> scathing is is the word yes you know like quite often i'm just having a look in the book now it opens with to the reader you know as prefaces often do and then it just goes through of course Hannah Gloss's name isn't used on Hannah Gloss's book yet. You know, this is right. early days. Yeah. So Anne Cook keeps talking about this lady, a lady with a capital L. And, you know, we know that this is Hannah Glass that she's talking about. Yes, little, little things that, you know, she says, a lady claims such skill in dressing meat, prescribes to lords and ladies what to eat. She steals <laughs> from every author, she says. Yeah. <laughs> In, infamously branding the pillaged cook. Yeah. She flees the poor low servants to get wealth and collect surfeits to destroy all health. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't and, hold back, Anne. Yeah. Can seed of noble blood or renowned squires teach drudges to clean spits and to build up fires? <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> it's only a bit of dinner. <laughs> it's just a bit of dinner, yeah. Quite right. Yeah. yeah, so she really hated it. And I knew that she didn't like her because it, it crops up a lot when you do your research, but I'd never really sat and read it properly. Mm. And so the book's got this big long poem at the beginning. And then the next section, which is a big chunky section, is she then does a complete, like almost recipe by recipe, taking down this <laughs> <Anna's> book. <laughs> uh -huh, and then the last bit is her recipes. Okay. Well, I have some like a, recipes as well, yeah. Some, some recipes yeah, there yeah, too. Yeah. So, you know, she obviously, I mean, she really was upset with mm -hmm. Hannah Glass. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, well, there was a lot of plagiarism around at the time. So that's why. But it turns out, actually, there was some, well, it got personal. It really got personal. <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. Anne Cook also lived in Hexham, where... Hannah Glass lived. Yeah. And her and her and her husband ran a quite nice sort of tavern hotel in called the Black Bull. She did the cooking and he was essentially the barman stroke, you know, front of house. 
uh, all going well, some quite important chancellor comes to visit and her husband, John, everyone's called John, which is really confusing. Her husband, John, goes off and borrows, is lent uh, a few bottles of quite expensive claret because he knew that this chancellor had a favourite drink. John goes to get these excellent bottles of wine from Squire Flash, which is a good name. It's very Blackadder. It is. Isn't it? (laughs) Squire Flash. So he could give the chancellor his favourite wine. So that's good. But then there's a bit of a mix-up. Flash denied that he'd lent this wine and said that actually John had just nicked it without asking. (laughs) And there was a big falling out. And it seems that Anne Cook might have been quite a lively one and Mm. really got stuck in with the arguments. It kind of ruined the Cooks' reputation and they had to to move away. And according, according to a local paper, they ran because... Flash swore to be the destruction, I'm quoting here, Flash swore to be the destruction of the bitch, his wife. <laughs> That's what he said in the paper. <laughs> so, high drama. Very high, high drama. drama. I mean, <laughs> somehow she's so, like a movie. Yeah, so off she goes, completely livid and shamed. But who is Squire Flash? Well, Squire Flash goes by the other name, of um, Lancelot, <laughs> who is the brother of Hannah Glass's father. And it's him uh, that who, who brought up Hannah Glass. So it's kind of... Um, Fla- okay. The, um, Squire Flash, his niece is Hannah Glass, and she grew up in his house. So she was obviously just so angry with the lot of them, hmm. rightly or wrongly, we can't say, unfortunately. There's not enough information. Yeah. And she saw what she probably thought of as some posh woman writing recipes that don't work. And here's she, you know, working her fingers to the bone, writing books that are fairly obscure Mm. and not really going anywhere. So I think she was angry, bitter, jealous, and all all of these things. Yeah, yeah. And we've just got such tantalizingly little information about it, really. But yeah, yeah, it's... So yeah, so that you can see why she did such uh, a takedown. It was obviously some kind of like manic psychosis she must have been in. She's, ah. <laughs> I mean, the whole um, ten pages of a poem, yeah, in your book mm. about your enemy, about your mortal enemy. Yeah, you got to pretty much hate <laughs> someone if you're gonna yeah. write a poem that long. <laughs> but funny enough, you know, in the bit where she's taking stuff down, I mean, some of the times she's wrong and she's just Mm-mm. being touchy or she's yeah. just want to be horrible but you know what when she she takes the yorkshire christmas pie as a case study almost mm. and lists all of the reasons why it wouldn't work and all the things that would go wrong when you made it and she listed every single thing that did go wrong <laughs> <laughs> with your pie <laughs> with my pie i just wish i'd known before about that you before made I started. it yes. <laughs> Oh dear. Oh, oh you dear. live and learn. Yeah. You live and learn. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, it was an interesting time. <laughs> it was an interesting time. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I wonder too if there was a certain amount of um, competition because these books were becoming to get successful. And probably Anne was, you know, angry that other people were 
you know, people who were less qualified but higher mm. up the pecking order was kind of muscling in when she wanted to get a popular book out, like maybe Eliza Smith, you know, as you know, yeah. d- domestic class or, or working class. Yeah. And she just thought, hang on a minute, there's not many pedestals to get on here at the minute. And yeah. Um, and you have I've just this, been uh, displaced by someone that I hate. <laughs> yeah, some higher class who don't have their qualifications, but the yeah, the Nick recipes and da da da. Yeah, I can see. Yeah. I can see. Yeah. I can understand her anger, obviously. Yeah, I can mm. see why. And you yeah. know, she was calling her out a lot, a lot of the time. I I don't think Hannah Glass knew what she was talking about a lot of the time. Mm. I th- I don't think she was a cook, but I think she saw people cooking. Mm. She was yeah. a domestic servant and she probably helped in, in the kitchen, but I don't think she was some kind of, you know, like a housekeeper who knew yeah. all the skills and, and what to do. Unlike Anne Cook, who did know all of these things, you know, to mm. be fair. Yeah, because obviously, you know, dom- domestic like housekeepers at the time, they had a lot of, um, not only skills, but they had a lot of responsibilities and a lot of different elements to ba- balance and juggle uh, and a lot of stuff as well, right? Like a domestic kitchen. Was yeah, massive. yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were basically being the woman of the house, you know, the proxy for the for the woman of the house. You know, at one point, you know, particularly the previous century and, and before that too, um, the lady of the house would very much be the person who was doing all the work, doing all the organising, and the housekeeper, you know, became a proxy for that because uh, during the 18th century, you know, people were making a lot of money, and one way to show off how much money you've got is to have more servants mm. to do more of the things for you. Mm. Um, so what what you got is that the housekeeper, although it wasn't a role invented in the 18th century, but it very much became doing everything that the lady house would have done. So she can go off and buy nice drapes and nice porcelain and yeah. invite her friends around for tea, which is very important because, you know, that was all part of the sort of theatre of of these things with the upper classes. You know, if if, if you could show that you could afford to buy all this stuff invite and invite people around for tea and, and cakes, which were all really expensive, and you could afford to have the women of your house not work. Got other people yeah. to do that now. Yeah. So it was all part of the sort of um, showing off and being a bit of a peacock, really, I suppose. And that was another way how you could show off, you know, how, how wealthy, how wealthy you were. So, yeah, it was really important. So it wasn't just that it was managing the, all the female servants in the house, in the kitchens, ordering the food. Yeah, overseeing absolutely everything that would be considered, I don't know, a feminine task. You know, things were very gendered in those days, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be back after this short break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And um, like only slightly afterwards, a few years or maybe a decade or two, we have mm-hmm. uh, this woman, Elizabeth Raffel, that you write so much about and... You have a whole book about her. <laughs> whole book about her. <laughs> She's rare. She, so she was a domestic servant. So the book is The Experienced English Housekeeper. She'd worked as a housekeeper, well, in at least one place. The first time we really know what she's doing is when she's working as a housekeeper at Alley Hall, which is a massive stately home in Cheshire. It was a, a big one. It still is a big one now. I've been there several times. They're very proud of having Elizabeth there, you know, in, in, as one of their housekeepers. And there was a large amount of staff. You had to have a certain amount of gravity and decorum about you. But she was only 25 when she took that job, you know, which was maybe an indication, you know, that she was, you know, a different breed Mm -hmm. (laughs) when it came to, I think she was just extremely hardworking, uh, very intelligent. And I think she was quite single-minded. You know, she really wanted to achieve stuff. Yeah. But she never got ideas above a station either. You know, she was very much a proud member of the domestic class. Mm-hmm. And this was up um, in Manchester or like outside in the north somewhere? That's right, yeah. She was born in Doncaster in Yorkshire. Um, okay, no, yeah. But then she moved. She was a domestic servant. We don't know what where she was, but she was a domestic servant in various places. The first time we know about her in any detail, it's Ali Hall. She's only there for three years and then she moves to Manchester mm. and spent the next 18 years in Manchester setting up various businesses to do with right. with either food or with sort of servants, domestic service. Because you said uh, her life could have been, <laughs> if it was a book, nobody would believe it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just nuts. Yeah. The, the stuff yeah. that she did, you know, she she ran two shops. She had, she opened the first, essentially the first temping agency in Manchester for servants. Those are the first temping agencies. She stopped one newspaper going bankrupt and funded a second one. She wrote, in her lifetime, seven editions of her book. She wrote three editions of the Directory of Manchester and Salford. Nobody had written one before. It's basically a, a yellow pages. A yellow page. Okay, okay. Like a yellow pages. So everyone's listed huh. uh, what street they live on, what um, job they do. There's a list of all the different stagecoaches you can get to Liverpool or London or Bath or York or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> It's a, it's a yellow page. There's 20,000 people living there. Mm. You know, it's not a easy task. And she does three editions of that. She apparently had 16 daughters. So all the time she's doing all this kind of stuff, she's <laughs> constantly uh, either nursing or pregnant and recovering from pregnancy. She opens an extremely posh sort of hotel and, and tavern, which 
was visited by the gentry and royalty. She was very much at the top of the pile when it came to um, the social scene in, in Manchester. Yeah. So she was absolutely amazing. She transformed Manchester back with all these things, like, you know, like having these yellow pages. Yeah, yeah. And helping people get staff. Um, and she did amazing stuff with food. And she died very young. She, so she died. At, this is going to make you feel like an underachiever. She she did all that stuff and she died at 47. <laughs> Oh Holy my moly. god! Oh my god! You have to... so it's nuts. It's really nuts. She died of a stroke. Not well, a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, it all went horribly wrong. She kind of went bankrupt. Her husband became a bit of a, a drunk and a spendthrift, and basically spent all of her money. Men. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a complicated one, but yes, you know, it was the the, the fault lies at his feet essentially. When mm. she died, it became a teetotaler. Read it into that what you will. <laughs> but her book, her cookery book. Her cookery book lived on. Mm. Yeah. Her cookery book lived on, became even more famous, actually, after she after she died. Mm. Because she was quite a proud woman. She didn't want her... Um, although she did have a name. And talking yeah. about the sort of incrementally improving cookbooks, it was her that really yeah. got it right. Because her recipes work, they still work. And like Eliza Smith, right at the beginning, she's a domestic servant, but she doesn't write in a subordinate way at all. What she says is, because she knows people are desperate for servants, you know, there's lots of people who've never had servants before, so she, she knew, actually, it, she could speak on a level. Actually, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay. So what she's saying is things like, um, again, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but she says, look, don't worry, all the recipes are in here, just if you buy my book, you know, you you basically inviting me into your home and I can help mm. you organize your food. I can help you express yourself because it was important to have people around and have dinners and show off and all that kind of stuff. She was yeah. basically saying, I can help you. I'm an experienced member of the domestic class. Yeah, that's and very important. That. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. You know, so she, she has housekeeper in the title and she has her name in the title. She's not Mrs. This or Mrs. That or just a, a housekeeper. Mm. She's saying who she is. Again, very much keeping in with the confines of what's expected of a woman at the time. You know, she's not trying to become a mechanic or, you know, something that's masculine. She's very much staying within her social arena. She's allowed to move around it, but really pushing it as far as she could possibly go. Yeah. So she's got, she's pitched it really well. So she's not talking down to the ladies of the houses who are buying the books. But because she's a domestic servant, she's not talking down to the people who are actually using the book either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's the kind of secret of her success. She doesn't, she didn't invent many new things. Mm. You know, all these things, all these achievements that she did, other places or other people had done them. She just found a way of just pitching them just right. Yeah, the recipes work. I'm writing in a clear manner for the people who are going to cook it and for the people who bought the book as well. And she also, importantly... She self-funded her book, so she went and made the money like in a kind of a Kickstarter sort of fashion. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the way to fund these things these days, isn't it? But people were doing it back in the day. Actually, I think um, Hannah Glass funded her book right. in the same way, so it, it wasn't unheard of again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was the done thing to have your subscribers, their names at the front of the book, again, which happens now, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With these things. Everything changed, but nothing changes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you look at a first edition of Hannah Glass's book, and there they are, the subscribers. Um, so that's nice. Han, uh, 
Elizabeth, and this might be her just being a bit cocky, because she could be a bit cocky sometimes, I think, mm. in some ways. She could be a bit tacky. Oh, <laughs> what, what's that about? Well, she says that she got so many subscribers, she didn't have room to put them at the front, to put oh, them in the right. book at all. You know? Um, so she's very much showing off there. Mm-hmm. But she did, she got, she had 800 books published. Yeah. That first run. And all of them were bought by subscribers. Mm. So, you know, 800 names at the beginning of a book. And it's only a, a small book. You know, it's, it would take up quite a lot of pages. So she's got a point. So I guess you'd have to say, obviously you have to apologize to the subscribers for their name not being in it. Oh, I would have loved to have put your name in it, but there's so many of you. <laughs> if but, we uh, only had that problem, Neil. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, but she's an amazing woman, I think. And when I was saying she could be a bit tacky, there's a story about her. She'd walk through Manchester Town Centre. It wasn't a, it wasn't a city yet. She'd walk through Manchester Town Centre and she'd have an, uh, a nanny with each child behind her, you know, like like a, in a train, all wearing brilliant white uniforms. Mm. And the babies would all be dressed in your crazy big white lace clothes. <laughs> it's like... Come on now. Okay. <laughs> but apparently um, domestic servants, especially domestic servants of the higher kind, so, you know, your, your, your butlers and your stewards and your and your housekeepers, hmm. they had a bit of a, there was a kind of a stereotype and it, what the stereotype was to be a bit sort of affected and a bit sort of, a bit snobbish. So maybe she was just... Following the, the yeah. example. I mean, stereotypes of, exist yeah. for a reason, right? Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, can you tell us a couple of uh, recipes or examples of stuff that um, are in her book? Like, I think you mentioned initially about omelettes and ice creams. Yeah, omelettes. Uh, it's one of those things. Like modern, I mean, basically. Modern. Yeah, you don't think about an omelette. It's something you you make for dinner when you're capable of cooking or something, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's quite the thing. And actually, one thing that was really successful, because an omelette is a French food. Mm. And one of the secrets to her success was, okay, she was taking the Hannah Glass stance of, you know, we need to get back to the English cooking and the way of doing things that people like. But come on, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater because some of this Mm. French stuff's Mm. nice. Yeah. And they've got some really good techniques which we can adopt. So she sort of smushed the two together a little bit and suddenly the arguments around the dining room table maybe got a bit lessened because actually everyone was getting a bit of everything that they liked. Yeah. Um, she very much sort of tempered all this French cooking to make it a bit more English, I mm. suppose. So mm. that's one of her successes. So, so Yeah, so there's things like omelettes in there. There's creme brulee, although she calls it burnt cream. Fair enough. She's got mar- macaroni cheese. It's the first recipe for macaroni cheese. Really? The first ever? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not American, it turns out. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure I've heard some macaroni cheese recipes from medieval Italy or something, but yeah, that's... Don't, don't, shh. Don't <laughs> steal my facts. <laughs> In the English language, at least. Uh, yeah, no, it, yeah, it does go back. It goes back ages, but it's the first time it's made with what we would think of as macaroni. Macaroni oh, yeah, is yeah, a yeah. general word for no, pasta. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a modern... Mac and cheese. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. But yes, no, there's definitely no. things that are like macaroni cheese and things like lasagna that appear in, in form of curry. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, indeed. She's got other very early recipes. So yeah, there's early ice cream. Uh, it's a nice apricot ice cream recipe in there. Mm. And I had the, 
fantastic look of making some historical ice creams with 18th century equipment with uh, uh, Ivan yes. Day a few weeks ago. Oh my God, tell me about that. <laughs> let's do a small digression about, and let's uh, talk about ice creams in the oh, it was 18th great. century. It, yeah. it was absolutely fantastic. You know, there's obviously no, there's no refrigeration, there's no freezers. So you're making ice cream with ice that you've probably stored in a underground bunker, your ice house. And this ice, you couldn't rely on Britain, even in the winter, for nice, yeah. good, clean, you know, clear ice. Mm. I mean, I'm sure if there's a cold spell, you might get lucky. But this ice was coming in from Norway, from New England. Mental. <laughs> Absolutely mental. I mean, skipping a little bit into the next century, New England, you know, North America, was exporting ice to Calcutta, to the British Raj. <laughs> That's insane. It's completely insane. And really expensive, of course. Yeah. You know, you have to build an ice house. You've got to buy, import this expensive ice. You've got to have expensive equipment. You've, you're, you've got to put exotic fruits in there, like pineapples, which are yeah, grown in England. They're not, you know, they're not exported by boat. They'd all go off. So yeah. they're grown by head gardeners. <laughs> in glass, yeah, in glass. Um, heat houses. It's yeah, heat houses. Doing it by hand. And, you know, it's with a little paddle. It's not even a churn. You see, you're paddling this sorbet or whatever, putting it into moulds or making ice creams. There's these nice little ice cream pails that you'd have, you'd put on the table, which will keep things cool. All <laughs> for, essentially, a couple of mouthfuls of sorbet at the end of a meal. Nuts. Nuts, absolutely. They need to get their priorities sorted out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but it was fun for you to, to do that, to it experience was it. It was amazing. And Ivan Day is a genius. <laughs> oh, I mean, he's he's great. And he, and I mean, I'm not going to stand here gushing about Ivan Day or anything, but he's so, and people overuse this word a bit, but he's, he is so generous with what he He's learned. He, he wants to tell people about it. He doesn't want to get all this information, keep it close because it's his stuff. Mm. You know, he really does like to share in these things, work, work with people and get this information and these skills, you know, out there, forgotten skills, but back into our daily lives. You know, he, he's spent 50 years working out, sorting the wheat from the chaff, you know, finding the really good recipes and things yeah. that we need to take maybe back to our hearts again that we've, that we've forgotten. So it's a very good chap. Brilliant. And then, I mean, talking about recipes, Elizabeth Raffle also had some uh, weird recipes as well, Some something. Yeah. Uh, what was that what, with, the, with the sparrows? Sparrow dumpling? Oh, there's a sparrow dumpling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> maybe briefly describe it because it's, it's quite So you the take thing. your sparrow. So you take your sparrows for your dumpling, you, take, you gut them pluck them there's not much going on on a sparrow but yeah, yeah anyway stuff it with a little bit of butter fine but you make them into a dumpling so you get a big bit of cloth that you put some flour on damp cloth with flour on mm. the typical way of making a pudding at the, at the time and you make like it sounds like a pancake batter recipe mm. or a yorkshire pudding batter recipe yeah yeah something like that yeah so you you basically pour this batter into a cloth, pop, mm. chuck your sparrows in, tie it up, and boil it. Mm. So it's a it's a big round boiled pancake, which doesn't sound good. Mm. Of sparrows, <laughs> full of sparrows. <laughs> I suppose if you have nothing else left, eat your sparrows. Well, well yeah. these are posh people. They're, right, you know, right, they're right, eating, right. They're eating it because they like it. 
So, okay. I mean, I do say, I mean, it is fun to kind of laugh, but I do say, you know, to them, this was just, this was normal food. Mm. And <laughs> the problem lies with us in thinking that's gross or weird. Right. You know, yeah, just to be serious yeah, for, yeah, for a second. Yeah, but yeah. that said, yeah. you know, and, it's just beyond anything that we were used to at all. No, no, true, mm. true. And that rabbit's surprised. I mean, rabbit's surprised. Yeah. Yes, the D is important because they're yeah. very surprised, these rabbits, I think. <laughs> what, what, what is this about? I mean, uh, can, can you tell us some, something? Yeah, so they're simmered, they're poached with a stuffing in them. So that's fine. You know, it's all Sounds fine. Good. But yeah. then it's, I guess it's more of the um, presentation mm. with the rabbits surprised. You, you, you arrange them on your dish and they've got their heads on. So you, you pull their jaw bones out and stick them in their eyes and put myrtle berries on the end, which are like big purple berries. So I'm, I'm, and again, I mean, I don't know, there's no explanation here, <laughs> but I guess they're going to look surprised <laughs> with their eyes on stalks, essentially. Wow. Almost wow. cartoonish. Yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. Like yeah. you see in cartoons, don't you? Yeah, Shoot, yeah. That's that very eye, cartoonish eyes. image. Yeah. So I'm assuming... They're literally look, meant to look like they're surprised. I don't know. Yeah. So there's another one, another one called um, pigeons transmogrified, <laughs> which is which is fun. We take little baby pigeons called they call them peepers. Take little oh peepers. I guess it's because they used to make little peep peep noises. Yeah. You cook them whole, head still on, inside cucumbers. They, they must have been growing really big cucumbers. You hollow out the middle. Okay. Shove them in the shove, stuff them in the middle, get, ram them in there with a wooden spoon or something, with the little heads poking out the other side, and then you you serve. That's how you serve them up. I mean, I don't know what they're transmogrified into. That's what you got. Wow. Okay. Out there, these recipes. Okay. Liz, Elizabeth was uh, was out there. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's definitely stuff that seems kind of medieval in there that's for sure but the vast majority is good stuff you know nice cakes nice puddings stuff like that you know I've, one of the best things i've ever made was her um mutton to taste like venison i had to adapt it a little bit because there's stuff there that you wouldn't be able to do now like um soaking things in blood for a few days <laughs> but um she takes a, a leg of mutton i i took a leg of lamb just because it's easier to get hold of and mm. you basically marinade it the original recipe it's it's wine and vinegar and blood i just missed out the blood bit for a few days and then you sort of roast it like you would do some venison so with the marinade and covered over a bit you know it's not like a dry roast where it goes crispy mm -hmm. and it is the nicest meat i've ever cooked ever at home and it right. tasted exactly like venison huh. and it was absolutely delicious so <laughs> you, you know some of these recipes you go mm, that looks a bit dodgy yeah. Well, you know how wrong we are because all the recipes of hers that I've cooked, even the ones that seem dubious, mm. have turned out to be really good. So yeah, yeah. what I should be doing is getting those rabbits and making some rabbits surprised. Yeah. See, seeing what it's like. <laughs> True. Because uh, obviously to make these recipes now in our kitchen, I suppose we need a bit of help, right? A bit of translation in a way. Yeah, so anything roasted of course, in these books, is roasted in front of a fire on a spit. Completely different. Mm. So I don't really bother doing the roast recipes. I don't really see there being any point. It's not the same thing. I know we talk, talk about roast chicken or roast turkey, but we're baking it, really. Mm. So it's not the same thing. Although you do see recipes for baked 
meats. You know, what right. we would think of now as roast meat because ovens, cast iron ovens were coming in at that point. So there are recipes okay. for, for baked meats. So you've got to miss, miss the ones that you can't do. There's, no, there's just no point. That, you mm. know, you can't, you're not going to be able to get close to doing a roast meat at home. I mean, I'm, no. I'm all electric at mine. I don't even have a gas hobs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I certainly can't do that. But everything else, and you know what? They went to great lengths, especially when making really delicate sauces and, and desserts, because they're using wood or using charcoal or coal. And that gives all the food a, a flavor of smokiness, mm, which is mm. a good thing. We think it's a good thing because we don't cook over coals yeah. or wood very often anyway, yeah, if yeah, at yeah. all. So it seemed like a good thing. But if you're wanting to make a nice custard tart or a nice delicate sauce to go with a, a dessert, you don't want it to taste of and smell smoky. They would really try to avoid that completely. Hmm. So I say, this is my, this is my get out clause, essentially, is, well, if if they knew about gas hobs or, or electric hobs, they would, at second's notice, would have dropped all that 100%. coal and charcoal yeah. and gone, brilliant, we can actually make these sauces how we want to make them. Yeah, 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 because you have a lot more control, timing, temperature, everything, it's a lot more uh, yep. detailed. And none of that yeah. smoky, smoky yeah. coal flavour, which can't have been very nice. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, I think I agree with your point. Yeah, we love it, but we do it very occasionally and for like meat or barbecue or whatever, not yeah. for our I mean, delicate dessert I mean, sauces. You're, you're very good at this kind of thing, of course. I mean, you're, I would say, you know, you're, you're an expert in these things. I don't know anything about it. It's a big hole in my, you know, my cooking skills, my mm. cooking arsenal. Yeah, I don't, I don't really do it. But the stuff yeah. that you do is amazing. I, I like uh, barbecue. <laughs> I like it too, but I mean, yeah, I'm on a second floor flat. That makes it more difficult to do. Yeah, could hang out yeah. the window or something doing it, maybe. <laughs> so, you, but you got to work with what you got. So you better do loads of really good, you know, the, the, the old broiled recipes. Mm. You know, lots of broiling, which is a word we don't use anymore in England, but they do in America. Yes, they do. Yeah. So a lot, lot of broiling. They call their grill the broiler. You know, with all these kind of weird. Slight differences in our language. You know, a lot yeah. of American cooking terms are terms that were used in the 17th, 18th centuries that we yeah. don't use anymore, but they still yeah. do. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, so to kind of start rounding up, I mean, um, these women were pioneers, basically. Yeah, they really changed things. You know, they, they'd moved away from a very male focused way of writing about cookbooks because i guess what i did mention at the beginning you know if you go a little bit further back when most of the books are written by men it's all very much trying to replicate the stuff that had been going on in royal courts yeah and all the french way of doing things so that's why it got opulent in the first place but now it was there's a focus on home economics eating within your means and splashing out when you needed to splash out mm. you know so there's a full gamut of recipes in these books you know elizabeth's book you know it has things like tripe in it, you know, really inexpensive things. Tongue is a very popular cut of meat, you know, mm. eaten. And as I always say, these are people who are well off that are cooking these recipes. You know, they're not turning their noses up at this kind of food. They're understanding that it's got to be eaten, whether you like it or yeah. not. But it seems that they liked it. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there is a six page long recipe on how to make turtle soup, you know, you know, which Christ. is. So when you did want to pull out all the stops, you can do that. So yeah, it, it, it was 
really good. It, it it made things much more sensible. It I think allowed women to be more, I mean, not greatly more, but at least a bit more expressive in their homes. And yeah, to, to help them to take charge more, and that kind of thing. So I think that's why they were particularly successful. And going into the future, you could tell it was successful because all the men who wrote books now were yeah. very much writing in the style of Elizabeth Raffold, oh. you know, and, and and similar, and Hannah Glass and, and people like that. You know, they weren't sort of just going back to what the other men had been writing a hundred years prior. They were very mm. much like, oh no, my my book is full of economical recipes that can be made by anyone at home, which is nothing yeah. like they'd been doing a hundred years ago. It's True. all about showing off and cooking absolutely crazy things. So it absolutely transformed how we write recipe books and, and how we eat. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, obviously for, A, for, for women themselves, I mean, it provided a path of, uh, you can have a bit of a career, a bit of a name, a bit of, you know, a creative outlet like book writing, poetry, cooking. It's something that um, you can express yourself and that wasn't possible yeah, before. indeed, yeah. But yeah, I can say it's much more gendered, but I think, and I might be, maybe I'm going too far here, but this is, I like to think anyway mm. that, you know, women's books written by women were now appearing in the homes, you know, on shelves in libraries. And it became not too uh, alien or weird thing for women's names to be on those spines of those books that are lined up on shelves. So I think that they are an important stepping stone for women's literature, women's writing of all types. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, now it seems very, almost twee and very feminine to be writing about cooking or self-help or mm. poetry or whatever. <laughs> but um these women were re- were really important because mm. a lot of the time, you know, they were, they were risking things like putting their names on it or, the, you know, they were risking their reputation sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They were really, yeah, pioneering, really. Mm. And um, I think, the don't think we mentioned about Elizabeth Raffald. So her recipe book was mostly recipes. She avoided medicine-like type of things that was in... Smith's and Glass's book, right? So they had more medicinal as well. Yeah, she. Yeah, there's all sorts of medicinal stuff. And even animal husbandry was in there sometimes because some mm. houses you might be expected to keep a cow or you might... What was very common is you'd catch wild animals and then fatten them up. So not mm. exactly um, tame at all, but, you know, you'd have to look after them. So, yeah, there'd be lots of stuff apart from just cooking. Although, yeah, Elizabeth Raffold kind of ditched all that and just focused on, on the cooking. And nothing else. Yeah, which just seems more modern, right? Like more mm. more modern cookbooks have about yeah. You have yeah, your indeed. recipe, your ingredients, uh, list, sure. uh, details, and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Indeed. Can we extrapolate? Or do we know of um, similar examples um, happening um, in other countries at the same time? Like women cooks, cookbook authors, like in France or Germany or I don't know, obviously USA as well. Or the colonies. Do we think that was more a phenomenon that's concentrated in the UK, in Britain, or it was something more of the time in other places? Um, yeah, I think it was. I mean, I'm no expert in this. There, there was certainly books written by women in North America and even in places like Turkey. The reason I know this is that I, I spoke to a couple of historians who specialised in in books from those countries, a couple of books mm. from those countries in, in that period. So things were cropping up. 
when it comes to North America, a female written cookery book wouldn't appear until the next century. I think, or maybe right at the very end of, of, yeah. of the 18th century, mm. but I think in the 19th century. So influential were people like Raffold and Glass and Eliza Smith, you know, because all those books were being published there instead. But it takes a little while, you know, for North America to get going with its mm. own identity and things, you know. Um, so maybe that's why it, it took maybe the 19th century before those kind of cookery books were coming out. In France, this, there wasn't. As far as I know, I mean, I'm very happy for to be proved wrong here, but I don't mm. think so. But if anybody knows about any female writers in the 18th century, you know, from the other European countries, I'd be very happy to hear about it. But I don't yeah. think, I don't think so. I would say England, especially Northern England, was at the forefront. You're a bit more free to do these things in Northern England, right? For some reason, it seemed to be. I don't know. Maybe you're just further away from the capital. I don't know, but. You know, all these writers, you're not from London. No, no, yeah, that's that's great. And also, obviously, it proves that you can actually be successful as a woman writer. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, indeed, indeed. And, I mean, I think, of course, that there should be a statue of Elizabeth Raffold in, in the centre of Manchester or something because she was so good. She, I mean, she, she almost did have a statue. She was pipped to the post by Emmeline Pankhurst, which is oh, kind of fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you could argue that, you know, Manchester wouldn't be Manchester without Elizabeth Raffold and all the amazing she, she did, things she did for that city. Because it wasn't just about food. You know, she did amazing things for the, for the city of Manchester. But she stayed within her class and she stayed within her gender, which Emmeline Pankhurst definitely didn't. Mm. Yeah, she was mm. more feminist. You yeah, know, first wave feminism. Yeah, Elizabeth, I would argue, was wasn't. I mean, oh well, she might have been, but her actions didn't indicate that she was. That's that's yeah. what I mean. So I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe she was. Um, we, we, we'll never know that. She definitely was. Yeah, she very much stayed within the realms of what was expected of her gender. Because things like you know, when when she opened the big posh um, sort of tavern. Because that was that wasn't just a shop anymore, you know. She, mm. Whenever she published uh, anything in the in the paper and advert, she didn't use her name; she used her husband's name. Whereas before, she used her name because now it's a high class tavern, you wouldn't have a woman's name there, right? And when, when she wrote her directories, those those sort of yellow pages, she's not in her own directory. <laughs> <It's> a husband, <laughs> because yeah, a, a woman wouldn't yeah. be in it. Yeah, and yeah. she wrote it. <laughs> See, she was. Quite amazing, yeah. Quite so, uh, extraordinary I mean, woman. Yeah, I mean, she she kept to the root. I mean, the, the flip side of that. So you could say, oh, well, I wasn't very feminist, unlike Pankers. But at the same time, she stuck to the rules, and yet she uh, did all these amazing things. Yeah, yeah. You know, she she stayed restricted, as she, uh, if you like, at least from look, looking at it from a modern perspective. You know, yeah. women have got restricted lives. So bearing in mind all those restrictions, she had all these amazing effects to, mm. to locally you know, to Manchester, but essentially to British cuisine, American cuisine as well. Mm. You know, her book was being published over there, like I said. Yeah, so yeah. So bearing in mind all those different ways she's being held back, like, my God, did, did she did she achieve so much? Yeah, so her legacy is a lot more than that. And why do we know Miss Bittermore? And why do we don't know Ruffled so much nowadays? Why is it... So well, I mean, I put it down to Mrs. Beaton, but mm. it's, well, hmm, maybe that, I think Mrs. Beaton was bad for m many female writers, not just Elizabeth Raffold. Yeah. 
because when she wrote her book, which she didn't write, when she wrote a book that she edited, and she yeah. didn't even do that because her husband did it, you know, it was just, <laughs> she was just a name to put on the on the front, really, you know, because yeah. people were used to having female names. Uh, How um, funny. <laughs> James, is it James or John? It's always, always James or John. Beating her husband was a publisher. She was writing for the fashion section. Mm. Um Isabella Beaton seems like a good name. So they basically just created this persona for her. And it was quite a cynical thing, really, because everything is covered in Mrs. Beaton's book of household management. If you see those first editions, I mean, the book's like a cube. It's so thick, you know. <laughs> Everything's in there. It's, you know, it's the cooking, it's the cleaning, it's the organising of the, yeah. the finances, legal situations. I mean, edged, everything's in there. You didn't have to buy another book. You know, like whereas before right. people would have a selection, like everything's in there now, mm. and not only that, everything works brilliantly because they've nicked all the recipes from people from previous books. And of course, most of those people were women, so you know it really I is guess. ironic, sadly ironic, mm. <laughs> that mm. this book written in a, in a woman's name is actually stealing recipes from other women and essentially putting them at least posthumously, putting them out of business, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm not wrong, Raphael's book, she had recipes, but she credited people when she took the recipes? Or am I mistaken here? Some people credited their books. So some of the men who wrote books and stole recipes. Mm. Okay. <laughs> there, were, there were a couple who did actually say, this is this is a raffled, this is a glass, this is whatever. So some some people were doing it. Mm. Um, but it was the extreme minority. People weren't crediting uh, their sources at all. You can't copyright a recipe still. You can't yeah. copyright a recipe. No, no, true, true. So there's always that problem. But some people were just weren't just um, reinterpreting or, or nudging recipes. They were just copying them out word absolutely word for word. Yeah, there was loads. I mean, poor old Eliza Acton was the one who was worse off from Mrs. Beaton. I think, you know, um, Eliza Acton's modern cookery for private families. It's a yeah, quite yeah. well-regarded well regarded book. I think a third of her book is in Mrs. Beaton's book. <laughs> <laughs> cheeky. Very cheeky. So, yeah, I mean, that's 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 bad. That's bad. But um, at least we have Elizabeth Raffold to pave the way for a more modern... Uh, cookery book <laughs> yeah absolutely fantastic neil this has been an amazing chat thank you so much for oh, spending the last hour and a half uh, talking how long we've been talking <laughs> <laughs> about this extraordinary pioneering women and their skills in the kitchen feeding all these uh, people like tens of people every day <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. cooking for all all types of people, you know, at, at the end. And um, like I say, but, you know, the books are easy to find. They're just online. They're, they're transcribed, yeah. typed up, if you like, so you don't have to kind of interpret the weird spellings and, and yeah. things like that. And, you know, have a go. Have a go at some of the recipes. You know, the baking, yeah. you know, an ounce then is an ounce now. Mm. There's a few little things that you've got to watch out for, but it, largely, you know, the, the recipes work. Great. Um, hmm. And your book uh, about Elizabeth Raffold co is called? It's called Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's Most Influential Housekeeper. Brilliant. And it's out in Pen and Sword. Pen and Sword History, yes, indeed. Mm, fantastic. So, listeners, go and get the book because it's obviously fascinating. Excellent uh, stocking filler. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
we have to say today. <laughs> we have mm-hmm. to say that. Yeah, it's near Christmas. And also it's Black Friday today. I forgot that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, excellent. And uh, you also have um, obviously a podcast about the food of the uh, British food history. As well. British Food History Podcast, yeah, yeah. That's between seasons at the moment. Mm. I've got um, a couple of pr- book projects on the go at the minute, so I'm really having to knuckle down on, on those over the next yeah. next few weeks, next few months, but I'm hopefully going to bring that back. Yeah, and I'm looking forward, yeah, you have more books ha- happening, so I'm looking forward to that as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing, really. I've got, I'm writing two books at the moment, actually, so it's a little bit eye-crossing. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I'm sure I'll get there somehow. Great, great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, then you might find also that Dr. Neil Battery has uh, his own podcast called The English Food History Podcast, which explores... English and British food more broadly through the ages with lots of fascinating insights and subjects from different eras. Very informative and very entertaining and with and always with an interesting insight on unknown corners of our culinary history and not only social history itself. So yeah, do have a listen to his podcast. And um, if you enjoyed um, this episode, please uh, do become members on Patreon where you get the podcast early and ad-free. Additionally, I would like to say that um, the podcast keeps coming out more or less every week now and um, trying to get uh, more interesting guests uh, with more subjects and create longer episodes with ancient adventures and so on. So yeah, please uh, do tell your friends and share it uh, wherever you can on Twitter, on on Patreon, on Facebook, uh, Blue Sky... Uh, share it with friends and family, email, WhatsApp, and uh, yeah, get more people to join our family. We recently celebrated 100 episodes and um, we keep going on. So there's something for everyone there. Lots of great guests and lots of great stories from the past. Plus, ancient recipes. What else do you want? (laughs) Thank you and see you soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.